Well, I invite you to turn with me in uh, your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. We begin a, um, a new short uh, series today uh, entitled, What Would Jesus Preach? And if you're familiar with the 1990s, you probably remember the slogan, What Would Jesus Do? Um, a very popular slogan. You saw it on t-shirts, you saw it on wristbands, bumper stickers. I still, still around today, probably not as much. And I, you know, I think it was a good slogan in some ways, but in some ways it, it had some problems to it. I think it's good because it's biblical, right? Doesn't the Bible tell us that we should seek to live like Jesus? That we should imitate him and we should follow his example. Uh, the Bible says we should be conformed to the image of Christ. Um, explicit commands in the Bible to live our lives like Jesus would live his life. Uh, th- the problem, I think, with the slogan was that many uh, tried to answer that question without considering what Jesus actually did. You know, the illustration uh, that, that I've seen time and again is, is you'll, you'll have a hot topic. I mean, take homosexuality or... Uh, take the role of women in the church, or uh, any number of issues. And you'll oftentimes hear people say things like, well, I don't think Jesus would condemn this practice. Or I couldn't imagine that Jesus uh, would forbid something like that. I can't imagine that Jesus would tell me that this relationship is, is wrong. When in fact, actually, Jesus did do those things. Well, people begin using the slogan to condone much of what Jesus Condemned. And the question went from what would Jesus do uh, to really what would I do if I were Jesus? <laughs> and therein lies the problem. So there's nothing wrong with the slogan. Okay, so don't, I'm not getting down on what would Jesus do. I'm just very much up on what Jesus did. And as we seek to, um, to look at the scriptures together, I want to I take that question and I want to uh, modify it slightly. I want to ask, what would Jesus preach? Okay, you can ask of this in whatever area of life. What would Jesus do with his finances? What would Jesus do in, in a marriage? Well, what would Jesus preach? And I want to consider that from the scriptures. And I, th- I think this is a good question for us to consider uh, at the outset of a new pastoral relationship. Uh, we should be asking, what does God expect of his people to expect about preaching and teaching? What should we as a church expect to hear from the pulpit, from the Sunday school classrooms, from our elders, from those who teach in the church? What should we expect? But secondly, how should we receive this teaching, this preaching? I think as we look to the example of King Jesus, there's no better example in Scripture, is there, than the one who was himself the Word of God and who modeled for us redemptively, but nevertheless, he modeled for us the right approach to preaching. So we're going to ask that question over the next few weeks. What would Jesus preach? And what better example than to look and consider what Jesus himself did preach? And as we study together Jesus' examples, it's my prayer that we will not only learn what Jesus would preach today, but that we would seek to apply his understanding of preaching and teaching here at Zion, both from the pulpit, uh, from the classrooms, but also in the pews. And that we would seek to respond in the way Jesus calls us 
to respond. So let's begin this series by looking at uh, the example of Jesus found in Matthew chapter 22. You'll find this on page 828 of the Pew Bibles in front of you. And we'll be considering verses 23 through 33. And just before I read it, a, a, a word about the background of this passage. This is occurring in the last week of Jesus's earthly ministry. And if you can compare the context with the other synoptic gospels, the other Matthew, Mark, and Luke gospels, even if you look at John's gospel, you look at the end of his his earthly ministry, the last week, you'll see that he is just embroiled in numerous conflicts. It, the heat turns on at this, uh, during this week. I mean, he's challenged in chapter 21 in Matthew about his own authority. The Pharisees are seeking to trap him politically over issues like taxes, trying to get him in trouble with the, the Roman government. You see that in verse 15 and following. The Sadducees here in this passage that we're going to consider were trying to trap him theologically with issues about the resurrection. You keep reading, the Pharisees are back again trying to trap him theologically with questions about the law. They're seeking to bring him down. And we, we know if we keep reading that they eventually get him to the cross. All under God's plan, all turning out for good. But nevertheless, we see the opposition that our Lord faced and as we consider the, the theological trap here of the Sadducees in verses uh, 23, uh, 23 through 33, we will we'll begin to, I think, learn something of, something of Jesus' view of preaching and the ways that he responds to these attacks. And I think it will be most helpful for us as we seek to model that here at Zion and seek to apply it in our very lives. So let's, let's begin by reading the passage. I'll read for us. Uh, Verses 23 through 33. Friends, this, this is God's word to us. The same day, Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, having no children, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished. At his teaching. Well, this is the word of God, and praise be to God for his word. Let's, let's ask his blessings as we approach it and seek to grow together in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you and submit to the word of God because it is you speaking to us. We pray that you would bless us with it today, even as you bless your people gathered around the world. 
seeking to hear you speak to them. We pray especially, Father, for our brothers and sisters suffering for the sake of the gospel, the persecuted church worldwide, seeking to do what we're doing here this morning under much more difficult circumstances. And we pray that we would submit to the word with joy, not simply as a duty, but as our delight. Through Christ we pray. Amen. So let's consider what this question is that the Sadducees are are asking. Uh, Then we'll look at what answer Jesus gives. And I think when we see both of those together, uh, we'll begin to learn something of what this teaches us about what Jesus would preach if he were here preaching this morning. So we'll begin then with the, the Sadducees' questions. But first, let's say a word about who these Sadducees are. You, be, you see there in verse 23, look down at your text. The same day Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. So who are the Sadducees? Well, they were theologically a very mixed bag. They rejected the oral tradition of the Pharisees, which was a good thing. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for not submitting to Scripture alone. So they rejected the oral tradition of the Pharisees, but they only accepted in Scripture really the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. They were very literalistic in their interpretation. There's there's nothing wrong with a literal interpretation. You know, sometimes you hear people say that word, where you're interpreting that literally. Well, it's literature. What other option do we have, Right? There's nothing wrong with a literal interpretation, but when we, when we ignore the fact that there are a variety of uh, genres in scriptures, there's not just the simple words on the page, but there's a broader story that God is working out. We have to look at redemptive history when we study the Bible. Uh, these people were so called in the trees, they couldn't see the forest. And it's, it's interesting, as, as much as they were literalistic and very wooden in their approach to interpretation... They held views, theological views, that very much mirror modern-day theological liberalism. And you see here in the passage that they rejected the resurrection. And we know from Acts 23, verse 8, they also rejected angels, the existence of spirits. So, theologically, a very mixed bag. But what, what, they're, what they're doing here in this passage is that they're focusing on this issue of the resurrection, And you can see how their views, theologically, account for the question. So what are they asking? What is the question here? Let's look at the question, let's look at their motives, and let's look at the problems that Jesus points out about their approach here. What's the question that they're asking? Well, look again at verses 24 through 28. Let me just reread this. Here's the question that they're using, and we'll see in a moment, to try to trap the Lord Jesus. Verse 24 they say, you know, uh, teacher Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now, what they're referring to is a passage and practice in the Old Testament from Deuteronomy chapter 25. You can look it up later today. Verses 5 through 10, where the law required something called leveret marriage. And what God required in Deuteronomy 25 is this, that if a man is married and he dies before having a son, his brother is to marry his widow and raise up a son for him. 
The firstborn would then take the, the dead brother's name in order to protect and continue the family lineage. So that was clearly commanded in Deuteronomy 25. And so the Sadducees are right about this. They're using the Bible. They've, they've got the leveret marriage practice down. So here's the question that they're asking. All right, if there is an afterlife, then who will the woman be married to who has multiple husbands? And now, now they're circumventing the whole divorce and remarriage question. Look, look at the text again. Now, there were seven brothers among us, verse 25. The first one married and died. Okay? So, the law requires that the brother marry the woman and try to raise up children. But the next brother comes, marries her, has no children, dies. Now, he's got a number of other brothers, and they each come in, and they follow Deuteronomy 25, and eventually they all die. The woman never has a child. And so the Sadducees are looking at this, and they're saying, okay, if there is an afterlife, then what do you do with Deuteronomy 25, Jesus? Whose whose husband will be of this woman, or whose wife will she be? You know, they're raising a theological problem for the resurrection, at least for them. We can't just toss the clear teaching of Deuteronomy. So what do they do? They, they toss the doctrine of the resurrection. So that's the question they're asking. Okay? Everybody understand the question? They're, they're, they're trying to put these two things together that they're arguing are incompatible. So, the, and let's ask this. Were they sincere in the question? There's, there's nothing wrong about not understanding something in the Bible and coming to God humbly and saying, I don't know how to put these two things together. You know what? There's a lot of that in the Bible, isn't there? Because we're not God. right? We're finite. There's nothing wrong with asking tough theological questions. But there's everything wrong about doing so with the, with the wrong motives. So were they, were they asking with genuine motives here? I don't think they were. I think they were seeking to attack Jesus by making his preaching look foolish. You see, Jesus preached the resurrection. And they're seeking by this question to make his preaching look silly. That's their motive. You see, all of the questions that Jesus gets in chapters 21 and 22 are aimed at testing him and trapping him in some way. And I think the Sadducees are using Scripture to attack him as well. Why else would they pose such a... It's really a ridiculous hypothetical question, isn't it? Some have argued that this is a, a real case, maybe. It reads, I think, more like a hypothetical. Why did they use seven brothers? Wouldn't two have been enough? Well, they're trying to make his view of the resurrection look foolish, aren't they? They're just piling them up, you know? There's probably a bit of a swagger as they do this. They, they, they prided themselves on being the theological heavyweights. And they want to make Jesus' preaching look foolish. Well, we'll see in a moment that Jesus rebukes these motives. But, but what is the problem? How does Jesus take their question and uncover their sinful motives, but also put his finger right on the issue? Put his finger right on the problems of the question. He doesn't bypass the difficult questions. It's, a, it's amazing. Jesus could have just stopped and said, you're utterly wrong. But he goes and he answers it. So look, look, 
look at the problems that Jesus identifies in the questions. Before we see his answer, he, he identifies two problems with the Sadducees. He says on the one hand, verse 29, that they have a deficient view of Scripture. Do you see that? Look, look again at the passage. Verse 29, you are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures... And then secondly, their deficiency in their views of God, nor the power of God. They're making a biblical argument, uh, but they're misusing the scriptures. So they have a deficient view of scripture, number one, but Jesus says, you've also got a deficient view of God. They don't know the power of God. Their view of God was too small. They were seeking to place God in a box. Their mind couldn't get around the Bible's teaching on the resurrection. So what do they do? They, they seek to conform God to their image. They seek to bring him down to their level. They put them in a, in a manageable box for them. Well, we do the same things too, don't we? We struggle with these things too. So we shouldn't be blown away by this. But it's a lesson for us. That when we encounter things that we can't understand, that God says, we should be okay with that. We should should recognize that God is much bigger than we think he is. We should be asking the question, how big is our God? When we come up, even against tough theological questions. But it's it's interesting how Jesus puts those two problems together. And that, that's instructive for us. It's an important observation that both of those are related. And, and I will tell you this, without fail, that a low, deficient view of Scripture is almost always tied to a low and deficient view of God. And I don't know how many times I've heard this very common argument that people will say that, well, the, of course the Bible's corrupt. How can you trust all of these different manuscripts and all of these different authors over such a long period of time? Isn't that just a little bit uh, absurd to think that the text you have is actually authentic? That you actually have the manuscripts that the originals wrote? Or that the originals were even able to, to write what God said? Well, just what does that assume about God? You know, you often hear the telephone game. They think the scriptures were passed along, maybe from translation to translation or from age to age, like the telephone game. You ever played that? Where one person, you get a, you get a row of people, and the message begins on one end, and they pass it to the next one, and by about halfway through, it's all garbled. You know, and you see at the end how, how different it is from the original. And people will argue, well, that's basically what scripture is. But do you notice the deficient view of God in that approach? You see, our God is big enough to go with each passing of the message and oversee it and preserve it and keep it exactly what he wants it to say. God's able to do that. He is sovereign even over our thinking, even over our communication. Deficient views of Scripture almost always entail some kind of deficient view of God. He is big enough, brothers and sisters, to preserve His Word for us. He is able to speak through the very words of the Bible. So that's the question. That's that's their motives. That's the problem. They're rejecting, they're denying the resurrection... 
Well, he rejects their denial. Right? He does so in two ways. Look at verses 30 through 32. Here's Jesus' answer to the Sadducees. He appeals to two things. First of all, he appeals to what Scripture is in his very nature. And he also appeals to what Scripture says. Look again at verse 31. Look at how Jesus appeals to what Scripture is in his answer. And as for the resurrection of the dead, now let's go over this very slowly and look at every word Jesus says here. It's so important. Have you not read what was said to you by God? And in that one statement, Jesus gives us the highest possible view of Scripture that you can hold. It's amazing in that one sentence how much theology is packed into his view of Scripture. Jesus equates the written words of Scripture with the very words of God himself. In other words, Scripture doesn't merely contain or testify to God's words. Scripture is God's word. Here's how Paul put it in first, or 2 Timothy 3.16. He says that all scripture is God-breathed, breathed out by God. It's God's word. And, and secondly, he says it's, it's sufficiently clear, doesn't he? Look again at that verse, verse 31. Have you not read what was said to you by God? Now, what's so remarkable about that is that Jesus is quoting from Exodus 3, where God spoke to Moses through the burning bush. You remember that. But Jesus also says God was not only speaking to Moses in that verse, but thousands of years later, he's speaking to you, the Sadducees. God continues to speak to us in Scripture. That's why, like, when you read the book of Hebrews, if you want to learn something of the nature of Scripture, read the quotations of the Old Testament in the book of Hebrews. Because the author will do things like this. He'll say, the Holy Spirit says, present tense, and then he'll quote an Old Testament passage. It was not only said, but it continues to speak. The Holy Spirit continues to speak to you and me, brothers and sisters, in the Scriptures. That's Jesus' view of what Scripture is. But he goes on. He says their problem was also with what Scripture says. Jesus appeals to the broad and to the narrow perspectives of Scripture in order to get at the nature and the reality of the resurrection. Verse, look, at, look at verse 30. This is something of the, the wide-angle lens view. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So what Jesus is doing is he's appealing to what Scripture says here, but he's looking at the big picture. And we, we get a little more help on this by looking at the parallel in Luke's Gospel. So keep your finger here in Matthew 22 and flip over to Luke chapter 20. The same event is recorded in multiple Gospels. And when you compare these multiple accounts, you get a little more data on what it is Jesus is getting at here. So if you look at Luke chapter 20, let me read for you verses 34 through 36. So Luke gives us a little bit more data 
on Jesus' argument here. This is, this is Luke chapter 20, verse 34. And Jesus said to them, to the Sadducees, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Isn't it interesting that he brings in angels Another doctrine that they reject. So what is he saying? Well, what he's saying is this. Biblically, when you look at the big picture of Scripture, not simply the very narrow verses of the Bible taken in isolation from everything else, but when you bring it in as a whole, Scripture gives us a very grand narrative. It it presents to us two ages. You see that in Luke 20. He refers to this age and that age. So this current age, and even Paul mentions it as this current evil age, is going to be replaced in due time by the age to come. And that's where Jesus puts the resurrection, you see. There are certain things about this current age that simply don't apply in the age to come. Mortality, in the age to come there won't be any more death. The institution of marriage will be fulfilled in the picture that it presents of Christ and his church. Hence, when you read all of Scripture, you begin to see that there's more to God's redemptive plan than what he's doing here now. There was more to Deuteronomy 25 than simply Deuteronomy 25. There's an age to come in which there's no sin, no death. Those things that are part and parcel to this age will be taken away in the age to come. And only when you do that, only when you read your Bible... As a whole, right? Taking all of it. The the Sadducees only took five books. We need to take the whole thing. Paul said all of scriptures God breathed. When you do that, only then will you begin to understand that passages like Deuteronomy 25, they don't apply in the age to come. In heaven, there won't be any more death. You won't need leveret marriage in the age to come. In fact, you won't need marriage at all, Jesus says. And, and had the Sadducees read all of Scripture carefully, they would, have, they would have known that. But they missed the big picture as it was. They, they missed the grand story getting so caught up in the details. They couldn't see the forest for the trees. And so Jesus takes them to the wide-angle lens view of Scripture. But then he doesn't bypass the, the specifics. He can look at the forest as well as the trees, the narrow-angle lens view. Notice the detailed exposition that Jesus gives of this passage in Exodus 3.6. Look at verse 32. Jesus quotes Exodus 3.6. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And notice what Jesus does. This is just remarkable. Look Look at how focused Christ is upon the text. He rests his argument on a verb tense. Isn't that amazing? Jesus draws attention to the fact that God used the present tense when he spoke to Moses. He said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. In other words, when God spoke to Moses, all the patriarchs were dead, right? Abraham had died, Isaac had died, Jacob had died. Jesus points out 
that God was still in covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when he said this long after they died. Now, how could that be if there's not an afterlife? That's his point. If he's still their God after they had died physically, then there must be an afterlife. He had made covenant promises to them. And despite the fact that they had died, he was still their God. They were still his people and his promises still held firm. And we're, we're told in Hebrews that Abraham was not look, simply looking to Canaan, but he was looking to a new heavens and a new earth. He was looking to the age to come. And what Jesus is saying here is if you had just read your Bibles carefully and honored the text, you should have seen that. What an absolutely remarkable observation Jesus makes. He points the Sadducees to a passage they probably knew by heart, but he, and he calls them to read it a little more carefully. And he proclaims the scriptures by way of exposition, down to the very tense of the verbs. So in one sweeping response, Jesus, he, he refutes the Sadducees by appeals to what Scripture is, the clear, inspired Word of God, and to what Scripture says, both from a forest and from a tree's perspective. And, and as we see in verse 33, the, the Sadducees, their mouths were just shut. Nobody asked them any more questions after that. They got it. And the people were amazed. They were astonished at Jesus' teaching. That's the response Biblical preaching should invoke. When God speaks, we ought to be amazed, brothers and sisters. So let's, let's look back to the original question now. So we, we've got the question they asked. We, we've got Jesus' response. So what can we glean from this passage about how Jesus would preach? Well, let me suggest three things as we close. Number one, this is obvious, but sometimes we miss the obvious. So let me just state it. Jesus would preach the scriptures. It's obvious, but it's also obvious that that's missed so often in the church today. It's it's been missed in the church going back to the time of Jesus, but especially today we see it just sadly absent. Many Many have referred to this as a famine of the word of God in so many churches today. Week in and week out, pastors are preaching sermons but never actually preaching the Scriptures. And just because Scripture is referenced in a sermon doesn't mean the Scriptures are preached. Wasn't that the Sadducees' problem? Right? They came to Jesus with the Bible. They were using Scripture. I'm sure if you heard them teach, they would make reference to Scripture left and right. They appealed to Scripture in their own preaching and teaching, but Jesus said they knew neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. So there's a very important lesson for us in that, I think, that just because someone uses the Bible in their preaching doesn't mean that they're preaching the Bible. Faithful, biblical preaching exposits the Scriptures in a way that is faithful to the text, something the Sadducees missed, and something the church, even in our own culture, in our day and age, misses. Jesus did and would today exposit the Scriptures because of his view of Scripture. If Scripture is God's Word, as Augustine said, if what Scripture says, God says, then the preacher's task should be to say what Scripture says. 
That's, that's the way Brian Chapel helps us uh, to remember just simply what the task is of preaching. Brian Chapel's written an excellent book called Christ-Centered Preaching. And he, and he says, if the scriptures are really the word of God, if they're saying what God says, then it's the task of those who preach and teach his word to say what scripture says. And he gives this illustration. This is a very powerful illustration for, for anybody who's preaching and teaching, but certainly for us as a church. Imagine God himself were sitting somewhere out in the pews on any given Sunday morning. Would he recognize his own word coming from the pulpit or coming from the classroom? What would be Jesus' review of the sermon or of the lesson? Well, it's a, it's a helpful illustration, but it's true, isn't it? Christ is with us this morning. He's observing how the word goes forth from not only the pulpit, but also how it's received in the pews. And brothers and sisters, he's not just here with us on Sundays. He's with us in the car. He's with us in the home, at work. Wherever we go, he's observing how we regard the word. So Jesus would preach the scripture, but second, he would, he would preach the breadth and the depth of scriptures. He'd preach the forest, the big picture, and also preach the trees. He would get into the, the depths of the passage. He wasn't afraid to go deep in his preaching. Verse 32, Jesus exposits Exodus 3.6 by going to the very tense of the verb. He went deep with the word of God. And he drew massive implications because he was dealing with what God said. So when you read your Bibles, do you pay attention to the the present tense versus the past or the future? Do you look at singulars versus plurals? Do Do you get that deep into each and every word of Scripture? We should be doing it in our own Bible reading, but we should also be doing it as the word is preached and it it is taught in the church. He'd go deep. He'd also go wide. He would keep in view the grand redemptive story of God centered in Jesus Christ. So ask yourself this question. If if Jesus was preaching Deuteronomy 25, what would that sermon look like? It would look different than the Sadducee sermon, wouldn't it? He wouldn't simply focus on Deuteronomy 25... Would he? He wouldn't omit it, but he would read it and preach it and teach it in light of all of Deuteronomy, in light of the entire Pentateuch, which is pointing forward. He'd do it in light of the entirety of the Old Testament, all of which centers on the person and work of Christ himself. And I've been so blessed in the past weeks from the Sunday school lessons as we've gone through some of these Old Testament passages like the Passover or like this morning, the Feast of Booths. And you can see how in the midst of the details of those things, you, you connect it to what Jesus came and said about those sacrifices, about those events. We see more of Christ when we read our Bibles in light of the big picture. And then lastly, Jesus would apply the Scriptures. He'd preach the Scriptures, he'd preach them, from a big, grand narrative perspective, but he'd get down into the depths of the text, 
but he would apply it. Jesus would not be satisfied with preaching that merely informs. It's not enough to get new data from a sermon. Rather, he preached in such a way that calls his hearers to respond with trust and obedience. When scriptures preach to sinners, we should hear in the preaching our need for growth and change. We all need to grow. We all need to change. And that's what Scripture is given for. It's profitable for preaching or for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in all righteousness. That's the goal of Christ's preaching for his people. So as we close, what about this sermon? Okay, this is a a quick instance of practicing what you preach. So how does that apply for us in this room? What should we do in light of this? How should we respond to God's word preached? Well, in closing, let me, let me suggest two ways. Number one, we at Zion should be preaching and teaching the scriptures the way Jesus would. So, I, I ask you that you would pray for me week in and week out as I bear the primary load of bringing you God's word. But also pray for anybody who enters this pulpit whether it's another elder or a guest minister, pray for those who are in the Sunday school classes. Pray for those who are teaching the word of God in the homes to their children. Pray for and encourage us to take up this view of preaching and delight in it and practice it. Secondly, we at Zion should receive the preaching and teaching of Scripture in the way that Jesus calls us to, with reverence and with joy. When I say, after reading the scriptures, that this is God's word to us, it's true. Have we not read what God spoke to us, Jesus is saying? And for us, as believers in Christ, everything you read, from Genesis to Revelation, do you know this? Everything you read is about God's love and commitment to you in Christ. That's what the Bible's about. It's all about Jesus. About what he's done for the salvation of his people. So have you put your trust in this Christ? When you come to the Bible, are you coming to it in light of what Jesus did for you on the cross and in the resurrection? Are you hearing God speak to you redemptively? Are you, are you seeing more of your sin nailed to the tree of Calvary? That's the way God calls us to receive the word as believers in Christ. So if you've never trusted in him this morning, I invite you to trust in him now. He has the authority of God because he is God. And he is a savior because he was a perfect man. In his preaching and his teaching... And his life of obedience in your place. So call upon him this morning if you haven't. And if you have, even if it's been decades, would you remember afresh the power of God, the nature and the clarity of Scripture? And would you receive it for his glory and for your joy? Let's pray. Father, we do pray that in Jesus' name that we as a church would receive what you say to us in Scripture, 
with the joy of the Holy Spirit, trusting in Christ our Savior, bringing glory to our God and Father in heaven. And would you grow us and change us as a body and as individual believers, even this week, for the honor and praise of your name, through Christ we ask it. Amen.